Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Friday, December 18th, and we'll start today's episode with a rundown of the FDA advisory panel that reviewed and endorsed the emergency use of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. Next, we'll talk with STAT's senior infectious disease reporter, Helen Branswell, to get her perspective on the early vaccine rollout and her outlook for the year ahead. Lastly, we'll bring you the final lightning round of 2020, offering some of our own hot takes, burning questions, and anticipated events to watch in biotech in 2021. But first, a word about STAT+. Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. P-O-D. The vote today, nearly unanimous. Just as it did with Pfizer's vaccine, the FDA's outside advisory committee is now recommending emergency authorization for Moderna's vaccine. The full FDA could... The United States is getting its second COVID-19 vaccine in as many weeks. So that's the news, but there's a lot more detail to discuss when it comes to Moderna's data experts' opinions, and the complicated process of rolling out a vaccine for COVID-19. So you guys ran this incredible live blog today, um, just as you did last week. And Damien, one of your posts actually I thought was really fascinating, that there's more information we need to know about these vaccines, even though there's really no debate over the efficacy at almost 95% in preventing disease. um, There's more information people want. So can you run through uh, some of those things that we'll get to learn about soon? Yeah, I mean, the most pressing and I guess maybe most obvious is We've seen how effective these vaccines are at preventing cases of COVID-19 over the course of a number of weeks or a small number of months. But the actual durability of that protection remains an open question and a deeply important one so as to understand you know, just how far these vaccines can take us out of the pandemic. But there's some maybe a little more nitty gritty stuff. Uh, that remains to be seen that I think is really fascinating. And one of them that came up today in the Moderna uh, discussion is that, you know, we know that the vaccine was very, very good at preventing cases of COVID-19, but it was not 100% effective. So in the case of Moderna, there were 11 people who got the vaccine and still ended up with a symptomatic case of COVID-19. And that actually sort of presents a scientific opportunity, um, a few of the panelists said, because studying those patients, you know, the antibody levels in their blood and also sequencing the virus that they actually got infected with can tell us a lot. Potentially, if we can look at the kind of antibody response that they had to the vaccine and compare it to those who ended up being protected, we might find out what, you know, the minimum amount of antibody production is to confer protection, which could be really important going forward when we do trials on other vaccines or other treatments to kind of know, you know, what's the immunological response necessary to keep somebody safe. And likewise, on the uh, genomic sequencing of the virus that ended up getting these people sick despite their getting the vaccine, there's a risk, uh, you know, nobody's really sure exactly how likely it is, but there's a risk that the reason they ended up getting sick despite being vaccinated is that their virus, their SARS-CoV-2, mutated in some way that made it, you know, I guess, impervious to vaccination. It's a a very interesting and and potentially alarming thing that we might learn um, or that Moderna has promised to investigate 
uh, when it comes to really digging into the data that they've already seen from this trial. So, Damien, there was a lot of debate and discussion about what to do with the participants of the study who received placebo and, you know, when they should get vaccine, when the data should be unblinded. And, and, and that discussion dragged on and on. Um, certainly toward in the, in the afternoon when we were all hoping that they would just vote. Does any of this matter? Like, why has this become such a big debating topic? It does matter. And I, I think it makes sense why it would be such a focus at this panel, which is largely a group of academics to whom picking apart thorny questions at length is is sort of what they do and how they got where they are. What underlines the question, which is, as you said, when participants who were in the placebo group should be given the chance to receive the vaccine. There's sort of like three unassailable facts, which is one, the longer you have placebo controlled data from any clinical trial, but especially something like this, the better you understand um, the efficacy, the risks, etc, of whatever it is you're testing, and in this case, a COVID-19 vaccine. Then there's the ethics. People who signed up for a clinical trial, especially a clinical trial during a pandemic where the vaccine that's being tested could potentially save their lives, there's a very strong argument that ethically they deserve the chance to get the vaccine after, you know, having to randomize into the placebo group. And then the third thing that's kind of unassailable is the practical matter, which is that we live in the world. Somebody in the placebo group could be listening to this podcast right now. They know that this vaccine is rolling out. In many cases, you know, there's a concern that they already know whether they were in the placebo group or the treatment group based upon the side effects that they did or did not experience after getting injected with something. So I think a lot of the discussion today was, how do you kind of thread the needle between all of those things? And I think a lot of the advisors on the FDA were kind of, you know, maybe not surprisingly, taking the most ivory tower position possible, which is that we should prolong the blinded portion of the trial, we should make it such that people don't know what they got injected with for as long as possible, because that's how we'll get the best data. And the best data is really the goal of running a clinical trial. And then, you know, the the other side of it is that everybody in the placebo group should just get the vaccine immediately because it's a pandemic out there and that seems pretty reasonable. And I think, you know, Moderna kind of pitched something that was a little bit down the middle um, where people in the placebo group would be invited to get vaccinated um, in tiers. So obviously healthcare workers would be first and then you would kind of move down the sort of CDC discussed risk groups and kind of like shave away at the placebo group such that you prolong as much placebo-controlled data as you can while still being practical. And I think, as Moderna made clear, they feel ethical, um, which is that people should have the chance to get this. And that's a really long-winded way of summarizing what I promise anyone listening to this. Um, I just saved you seven hours because we listened to <laughs> exactly that for much longer. That is a true public service, Damien. <laughs> so obviously, this was a positive vote, and we expect the FDA to grant the emergency use authorization of the Moderna vaccine you know, if not tonight, tomorrow, it, it's going to happen. So Meg, I got a question for you. This whole issue that came up uh, about shipments to states and states complaining that they're not getting the amount of, uh, in this case, the Pfizer vaccine that they thought they would get. And then Pfizer telling everybody today that no, uh, there's no problems with manufacturing. And they've gotten a million or so doses in a warehouse that apparently nobody has called for. What's going on? Yeah, there seems to be something sort of odd 
bubbling here under these communications that we're hearing. But on the, you know, the very surface of it, what we've heard now from multiple states, from California to Rhode Island, they've all said, their governors or their public health departments, that they've been told by the federal government that their allotments of Pfizer vaccine have been cut by 30 to 40 percent or even more in some situations. Um, California said they were supposed to get 400,000 doses for next week of Pfizer's vaccine. They were told that on Monday and then said today they were told uh, that it would be 40 percent less. Now, I've been trying to figure this out. Is this a miscommunication? Is this some kind of just the software not really working? And actually, the Sacramento Bee is reporting that it really might be that problem that Tiberius, you know, the software that they're using to track all the allotments and all of that, um, that, you know, they had basically given out sort of old estimates at one point before they knew how much supply they had. And they just sort of had this these filler numbers in there. And perhaps that's what is happening. But but if that's happening, the HHS is not saying that overtly. And earlier in the day, they told me that these reports that the allocations are being reduced are incorrect. And they just noted that as was done with initial shipments of Pfizer's vaccine, jurisdictions will receive the vaccine at different sites over several days. But they didn't really give a reason there. Um, Then uh, later in the day, Pfizer put out this statement um, saying that it needed to address public comments alleging issues in the production and distribution of its vaccine, saying that it's not having any production issues No shipments containing the vaccine are on hold or delayed, saying that they successfully shipped all 2.9 million doses uh, that they were asked to ship by the U.S. government. They say they have millions more doses sitting in their warehouse, but as of now, they have not received any shipment instructions for additional doses. And all of this, guys, is being set against the backdrop of a negotiation over doses of Pfizer's vaccine for the second quarter of next year. There was this story that came out saying that uh, Pfizer had offered those doses to the United States government as recently as after they had their interim efficacy data in November. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's on Pfizer's board, said that on CNBC. HHS is disputing that, saying there was never a firm offer on the table or it was made earlier and they didn't know if the vaccine worked, so why would they buy more at the time? And so there is this sort of public argument going on between Pfizer and HHS over these doses that now Pfizer has sold to other countries because they say the U.S. government didn't buy them. And they can deliver doses now in the third quarter and the U.S. doesn't want them then. Uh, And so this is a real uh, argument that's really bubbled up. And unfortunately, what, what it seems to have resulted in is states being confused over how much vaccine they're going to get. Although HHS is just saying that any reports that their allocations have been cut are false. And is this going to be what we all sort of pay attention to over the next few weeks? Like we're just going to be tracking shipments and seeing who gets them and who doesn't and who's complaining. And is that sort of what we're in for over the next several weeks? I mean, I hope not. But as these vaccines go out, you know, we'll be hearing more about how they're getting administered and whether we have the infrastructure to administer this many vaccines to this many people in such a short period of time. There's going to be a lot to cover. Hopefully it's not just this back and forth and hopefully you know, just for everybody's sake, if we need more Pfizer vaccine at a certain point that that deal can be struck. Um, Luckily, you know, within the next few weeks, we should be getting some data from Johnson & Johnson. According to Operation Warp Speed, they're going to have data um, in January. So looking forward to that. So the other, you know, kind of big issue today, uh, Damien, was this idea that we've seen some rare but 
potentially severe allergic reactions um, in some people who have uh, gotten the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. How did the panel think about this with Moderna's vaccine, which, which is a different vaccine, but the same technology? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like everyone has acknowledged that, you know, as you mentioned, these numbers are so small, but the concern is real. And so we're almost talking about hypothetical risks, which are important for something like a vaccine that will be administered to hundreds of millions of people. So it seemed like there wasn't necessarily a level of alarm, but rather what was reflected by both what the panelists asked Moderna and what Moderna said, specifically um, the chief medical officer, Tal Zox, is that this is clearly on their minds. You know, they mentioned, you know, looking back through the data from this phase three trial, but also data from earlier clinical trials of their other mRNA vaccines, kind of in search for a signal here. And it remains small numbers, and it remains, I think, a little bit befuddling as to what about an mRNA vaccine, which is, you know, a little bit of mRNA and a sort of like fatty envelope that chaperones the mRNA to its uh, to its target cells. What in that sort of admixture is triggering this? I don't think anyone knows. And, you know, Moderna kind of went at length to describe how, despite the fact that its vaccine and Pfizer's vaccine are technologically the same. They use different individual components, um, which kind of muddies the water a little bit when we're looking for what might be going on with these allergic reactions. But it's not so much that this is something that would stand in the way of either of these vaccines being widely available, but that we need to have more information so that when the FDA or any regulator or any body around the world is asking people to get vaccinated, it can have a convincing answer on the question that will come from millions of people who have uh, severe allergies, is this safe for me? And we're just not there yet. Yeah. And the problem right now is that it's a little bit of an incomplete math problem because we really don't know what the denominator is, right? We're hearing about these severe cases of uh, allergic reactions, you know, just a handful, but we don't really know what the denominator is, meaning like how many people have been vaccinated to this point. Now, we know it's like not a ton of people because they literally just started vaccinating people days ago, but we need to sort of know what the frequency is. And right now we don't. And so when, you know, I, I know there was like some sort of debate within journalism circles today about, you know, should news outlets be reporting on these cases and, and how they should be reporting them and what kind of context they should be reporting them in because you don't want to scare people about, you know, potential side effects, which, you know, might be incredibly rare once you roll out this vaccine to tens of hundreds of millions of people. That's kind of also making this a difficult thing to to kind of comprehend at the moment. One of the, the major concerns that we're thinking about is how do we guide around just how to react when, you know, somebody gets the vaccine and then has a heart attack? Tons of people, unfortunately, are just going to have heart attacks anyway, uh, whether or not they got a vaccine. And the proximity to the vaccine is going to raise questions. And those are going to be really hard reporting questions uh, throughout the next few months, because there will be lots of things that happen to people that would have happened anyway, and that will just have happened to have a new vaccine right beforehand. And sorting through that is the the challenge of our public health officials at CDC uh, and FDA. Um, and, and as reporters, it, it's something we're going to have to figure out. We should note that someone got the vaccine and then was later struck by lightning. Really? Here it is. Yes. A 72-year-old participant with arrhythmia after being struck by lightning 28 days after vaccination. It's in the briefing document. I would say I can't think of a better distillation of this sort of challenge that Meg was describing than the fact that somebody might get the vaccine, have a cardiac arrhythmia, and then come in for an examination, and it turns out he was struck by lightning. 
Like that that's sort of what we're up against sort of intellectually as we move forward. I think it's safe to assume that the Moderna vaccine is not causing lightning strikes. You should run a placebo controlled trial, Adam. <laughs> This is the last Read Out Loud episode of 2020, so there is no better final guest to have on the show than Stat's very own Helen Branswell. Helen has, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, achieved rock star reporter status this year for her incredible work covering the COVID pandemic. Helen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. So Helen, over the past two weeks, you've spent a cumulative 18 hours or so listening to experts debate the merits of the first two vaccines for COVID-19. For listeners who are perhaps not quite so masochistic, what are the big takeaways from the data on Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines? Well, I'm sure your listeners already know, but I mean, the two first two vaccines are sort of stunningly effective, at least at first blush. And that's just incredible good news. Um, another thing, though, is that they seem to be fairly reactogenic. There are a lot of side effects that are reported amongst people who get them. This is not a vaccine that you're going to get and forgot you got a vaccine. More likely, these are vaccines that you'll you'll know you've been vaccinated, but, you know, that's a sign your immune system is kicking into gear, and that's a good thing. More than that, I guess I would say it was kind of amazing listening to the presentations to the FDA's advisory group today and, and last Thursday. It's extraordinary that within less than a year of... Um, the identification of a new pathogen in the world, the FDA is, is, you know, on the verge of approving for emergency use um, a second vaccine. It's really quite extraordinary. The Pfizer vaccine is already rolling out across the country, and Moderna's vaccine will be doing the same in the coming days. Earlier this week, Helen, you talked to Claire Hannon of the Association of Immunization Managers about how this whole process is going to work. What are experts looking out for as these vaccines get widely distributed? How well the system works. I mean, you know, no one's tried to do what the United States is trying to do right now. The biggest thing that approximates this is the annual flu shot um, effort. In a good year, about 50% of Americans get a flu shot. This is a campaign that's asking, you know, as close to 100% of Americans as possible eventually to get two shots in most cases. If there's a one-dose vaccine approved for use, that will obviously help. But I mean, this is just an extraordinarily big lift, and it's going to be a real challenge for the people who are in the last mile to get this work done. And it's not really super clear yet how well organized it is there. I mean, Operation Warp Speed has spent billions of dollars promoting the production of vaccines, both the, you know, design and uh, clinical trials, and then actually producing to large scale vaccine. But not that much has been spent trying to figure out how to make the rollout run smoothly. And I think as a consequence, we're going to see quite a few bumps in the road. Tell us more about that. Like what kinds of bumps could potentially happen? You know, states are hearing that they're not going to get as much vaccine next week as they thought they were going to get. And there'll be more instances like that. Earlier this week, we heard that the five-dose Pfizer vials actually contain six and sometimes seven doses. And there's been a lot of confusion over whether or not it was legally permissible to use the extra 
antigen or if it had to be thrown away. And some places have been throwing it away. FDA has stepped in and said, no, these are emergency circumstances and people should be able to use those extra doses. But that kind of communication should have happened before people started to administer, not after people threw out some doses that could have been used uh, to protect people. I think there's just a ton of things that can go wrong and some will. There's been a lot of talk about the forecasts that are being given by people like Health Secretary Alex Azar um, about when people will be able to get vaccinated and how much vaccine is going to be rolled out. Um, And there's some thought that his forecasts are overly optimistic. And whether intentionally or not, it could create a situation um, to set the new Biden team up to look like it's failed. Because some people are saying those forecasts of, you know, everybody who wants the general population being able to start getting access to vaccine as early as perhaps February or early March, a lot of people are just saying is is really overly optimistic. Uh, And I just wonder your thoughts, like, is there a situation here where the next administration is going to come in and obviously has not been the first friendliest of transitions. Um, Is there a situation where there's just no way the Biden administration can really look like it's succeeding there? You know, I can understand why people think that. But, you know, you have to remember that this administration has been projecting hugely aspirational um, numbers in terms of how much vaccine could be produced and delivered before the end of 2020, how quickly people were going to be able to be vaccinated, even before they lost the election, when they thought they were going to win the election. You probably remember the CDC director, Robert Redfield, testified before a congressional committee at a point in was asked about how long it would take to vaccinate people. And he said something about summertime and got a call from the White House telling him that he'd misspoken. The president, I think, actually said in uh, the daily briefing at that point that clearly uh, Director Redfield had misspoken because that was far too um, long a period of time. You know, regardless of what the goal of that messaging was, I think it runs a risk of really disillusioning the public because, you know, it's clear that it's going to take longer than they say it will take. Making vaccines is really hard and, you know, there can be problems batch to batch. And just because somebody has said that they're going to deliver 100 million doses to you by such and such a date doesn't mean they're actually going to be able to do that. You know, at a point, does the public forget that this is a Trump administration project and start to blame the new administration? I guess that that is possible. So pandemics are by nature global problems, and thus this one won't really truly be behind us until COVID-19 has been quelled around the world. And this week, there was an analysis in the BMJ concluding that about a quarter of the globe, mostly low and middle income countries, won't likely have access to a vaccine until 2022. How are global authorities thinking about this aspect of the problem? Well, I mean, I think it's hugely problematic and and it's short-sighted, frankly. The notion that if you vaccinate your own public, that things will go back to to normal is is just clearly wrong. I mean, the world is highly interconnected and the parts that you need to make whatever it is you make in, you know, Wichita, Kansas or anywhere else may come from three or four or five countries around the world. You know, as long as the pandemic rages, you know, the beaches of Bali are probably going to be off limits. Um, so it behooves everybody who has vaccine to try to ensure that countries that don't have vaccine get access and as quickly as possible. 
they're real ethical questions one could ask about the idea that low-risk people in wealthy countries should be vaccinated before healthcare workers in low-income countries. But you don't hear that debate happening very often. So about a year has passed since the first reported cases of COVID-19. Looking back, Helen, what has been the most surprising twist in this pandemic so far? For me, it's been the politicization of the pandemic in the United States and the impact that's had on people's willingness to actually even believe that there is a pandemic underway. I never thought that when a pandemic, especially one of the magnitude of this one, was happening, that you would actually have a portion of the population that would deny its existence, dismiss the importance of it, refuse to protect themselves or their loved ones because the politician they followed downplayed it for his own, you know, electoral gain. If I'd been writing a script, that is not something I would have thought to put in. Yeah, and actually it wasn't in the script of Contagion, which was otherwise (laughs) fairly spot on. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Helen, I remember, you know, in March seeing a New York Times article uh, with the headline, the medical news site that saw the coronavirus coming months ago. And the lead is about how you, back on New Year's Eve, posted on Twitter about this unexplained pneumonia in China. And it's really a profile of you. And I think probably everybody who listens to our podcast already has a tremendous amount of admiration and respect for you. Uh, but but just trying to put into perspective for anybody who might not know how how wonderful you are and how how much acclaim deservedly you've you've gotten over this year for your incredible coverage. Can you tell us, you know, as you've become this this rock star in public health reporting, I mean, you've been one for so long, but what has this year been like for you? How has your life changed really since since you wrote that tweet? Yeah, it's been, I, I think I'm about 85 years older <laughs> than I was when I <laughs> tweeted that tweet on New Year's Eve. It's been a fascinating year, horrifying in some ways. The pandemic is bad, but it's some of it is not as bad as I'd feared it might be. Um, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> What's not as bad? Well, the infection fatality rate is not as high as it appeared initially, which is a good thing. I mean, it's still not great, but um, initially it looked like some single digit percentage point, like. Um, one or two or five percent of people who got it died, which is a horrifying number when you think about something that's sweeping the globe. It's probably, I think, the last estimate I saw was like 0.6 percent or something like that. But that's also a horrifying number when you think about something sweeping the globe. You know, I take heart in the fact that uh, hospitals have figured out better ways to treat patients. Uh, you know, I think that they are saving more of the people who become severely ill. It's remarkable to learn that you can actually influence the transmission of a respiratory virus by doing things as simple as wearing cloth masks and, you know, limiting the contact you have with other people and, you know, the distance at which you have it. That was not known before this pandemic. And that's that's a really important thing to think about and will be a useful information the next time there's a flu pandemic. So it's it's been a very 
you know, intellectually interesting year, uh, emotionally draining year. Uh, I won't be sorry to see it go. Well, Helen, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy holidays, and let's hope for a kinder 2021. Here, here. Amen. So 2020 is at last winding down, and with that, we figured it would be wise to look ahead to some of the big stories in health and medicine that we're going to be watching for in 2021. So obviously that's going to include the vaccines that we've spent this episode talking about, but Meg, there's a lot more to stopping the pandemic than just these injections. Yeah, another really important tool uh, for this pandemic are therapeutics, and specifically these antibody drugs from Regeneron and Eli Lilly, of course, which were used to treat folks like President Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Chris Christie. And when President Trump was treated with these, he said they would be these important tools uh, for all Americans uh, with COVID-19. And the concern, of course, at, at the beginning was that there just wouldn't be enough of these drugs and they would have to be rationed. But we learned this week something crazy that actually it's the opposite problem. They're shipping out about 65,000 doses of these drugs every week. And according to Monsef Slawi from Operation Warp Speed, they've just got some new data on the usage of these drugs, and they're only being used at about 5 to 20%. So there's actually a surplus of these antibody drugs. And we're learning it's because, you know, they're very complicated to administer, and these patients are contagious with COVID-19, so they can't go to any IV infusion center, especially places have to be set up for them. They're also indicated for a very specific group of people um, who were just diagnosed with COVID-19 as early as possible or at high risk of complications or going to the hospital. So at the beginning of disease, people don't actually feel that sick. And so, you know, it wouldn't occur to them necessarily to get an IV drug. So all of those things are very complicated. It's something that we really hope to see get worked out in 2021, because as we're waiting for more vaccines, these really could still be a bridge to the vaccines. So Damien, what's on your uh, watch list for 2021? Well, it's hard to overstate the importance of the coming FDA decision on aducanumab, the Alzheimer's disease therapy from Biogen, which I know we on this podcast and at Stat and at CNBC have spent a lot of time talking about it. So, so anyone listening to this is probably pretty well versed. But the issue is Biogen has a confusing and, and you know, arguably problematic set of data supporting the idea that this drug works, that this drug slows the cognitive decline uh, of patients with early stage Alzheimer's disease. And on March 7th, or by March 7th, the FDA has promised to decide whether this should be an approved medicine or whether Biogen should go back to the drawing board and accumulate some more evidence or just move on altogether. And the implications for obviously principally the millions of people who have Alzheimer's disease or who care for those who have Alzheimer's disease or have family members who have the disease, but likewise for the drug industry, uh, you know, the precedent that this would set, the FDA, you know, regulatory bodies around the world who look to the FDA, and then, you know, very clearly Biogen, a company very much in flux for whom a positive decision would give them a drug that will bring in billions of dollars a year, even conservatively, and a negative one will force them into something of an existential crisis as to how to move forward after they've spent so much time and so much money and so much intellectual capital on this particular medicine. So it's easy to guess at what the outcome will be, to look at the past, to read various tea leaves, but I think most people acknowledge that we're all kind of in the dark about how this is going to play out. And that feels like one of the most momentous single occurrences that's, that's on the calendar for 2021. 
I totally agree. It's going to be really exciting to watch that. And also something you've pointed out, Damien, is that if this drug does get approved, we're going to have to have more infrastructure for IV infusions because it's given that way and so many people have Alzheimer's disease. So kind of tying our first two topics together. Adam, what are you bringing to 2021 Biotech Show and Tell? Well, Meg, (laughs) I've made a paper mache volcano. No, just kidding. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time in the last few years reporting on gene therapy, and I think I will be doing the same in 2021. Uh, a couple of things to point out on the gene therapy side, I think uh, Sarepta Therapeutics will have some pivotal data for a gene therapy to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That should be coming in the early in the early months of 2021. And there's also uh, Biomarin will have some long-term data on their hemophilia A gene therapy. If we recall earlier this year, uh, the FDA rejected uh, Biomarin's gene therapy for heme A, and uh, they need some more data. So that will be a pretty big event. And I think the other really important thing to watch for gene therapy is manufacturing issues. Now, this is not a sexy thing, uh, and it's often the thing that we don't think about very much because uh, it's a little bit of a black box. But, you know, we've had a lot of problems this year uh, with companies developing gene therapies that have kind of run into roadblocks on manufacturing when it comes to the FDA. The FDA has wanted to see um, new assays and quality control type of issues or that have delayed uh, a lot of programs. And so that is a pretty important issue because, you know, you can develop these gene therapies all you want, but if you can't make them uh, in, a, in a commercial quantity and get that through the FDA, then they never get approved. You mentioned manufacturing. I think the world is getting a lesson in why manufacturing is so crucial uh, as we go through this saga with the COVID vaccines right now. Oh, definitely. Without a doubt. And on the note of vaccines, of course, one of the early events we expect uh, next year is in January. We've been told by Operation Warp Speed that Johnson & Johnson might have its first interim efficacy readout on its COVID-19 vaccine. And perhaps sometime after that, we should see the U.S. trial results from AstraZeneca. And J&J, of course, is the only COVID vaccine, at least in this sort of leading bunch, that's being tested as a one-dose regimen. So it'll be very fascinating to see if that works. Works as well. And of course, we all hope it does because that will add a lot of supply next year um, if that gets through the FDA. And I guess maybe we'll end this segment just uh, with a hopeful thought that uh, in 2021, we'll all be able to leave our homes, maybe see a movie in a movie theater, go to a concert, and maybe go to a medical conference or two. And maybe the four of us with Hyacinth, we can all get together for a beer again. So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. We're going to take an extended holiday break, but we'll return with a new episode on January 7th. In the meantime, thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what your most anticipated biotech event is for 2021. You could do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. Lastly, we'd like to express our appreciation to all of you for listening to The Read Out Loud in 2020. Your support of this podcast truly means a lot to us. So thank you. Happy holidays and happy new year. See you in 2021.